All right. Thanks for joining us, everybody. We are live here at the KFBS Digital News Desk, and it's, a, it's time once again for By the Bushel, and we have with us Barry Bean, uh, who is with the Missouri Farm Bureau, and of course he is a local heartland farmer. Barry, how are you doing today? Well, I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Um, conditions are uh, are good here. Was out earlier this morning doing a brief tour of the crops. Uh, I know our, our our cotton and soybeans in particular are off to uh, to a great start. The uh, the early corn looks good. Um, did see a few people putting out some polypipes. So, uh, you know, to to maintain the tradition that no farmer is ever a hundred percent satisfied with the weather, we'd uh, we'd sure like about an inch rain uh, this Friday afternoon. But uh, but things look good. Things look good, and we're we're enjoying this. Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, I just. Myself, I get to, whenever it gets to this sort of weather, I get sentimental about being back on the farm, or at least at least um, sentimental about whenever being back on the farm and, you know, square bales and things were, like that were, were at their very, very most tolerable um, <laughs> during, during conditions like these. And so um, that's certainly, certainly uh, what this weather reminds me of. But, uh, yeah, absolutely. I was, I, was, I was never fortunate enough to... Uh, to have square bales at this time of the year, we 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 had a pea hay for a while, and uh, and I do remember throwing a lot of pea hay in July and August when uh, when this would have been freezing. So uh, I associate hay with uh, with it being about a million degrees, having your shirt off, and uh, coming in looking like you'd been attacked by a porcupine right. from uh, from all no. the scratches on and chest <laughs> I guess I guess I should clarify that that these are few and far between because of course yeah hey hey being further along in the su summer but whenever you get this sort of uh, you know some of that cool down in that that that's mainly it uh, but uh, sort sort of have to pretend I, I know what I'm talking about even <laughs> I, I just worked there I didn't know what I was doing I just worked on the farm I didn't know what was going on but uh, uh, <laughs> the, fact, the, fact, the fact that you know bales used to be square already puts you ahead of about 90% of the non-farm population. So uh, yeah. you've got some credibility. There you go. There you go. And if you get into really the weeds of it, you've got the, the, the big square bales. But those are, those are fewer and far between them. We, we, those, those are a novelty. Um, anyway, got to get me back on track here. But as far as... Um, some of the things that farmers are watching today, um, some of those numbers and headlines, what, what, are, what are farmers keeping their eye on uh, with the markets and, uh, and news? Here we go. We'll hop over here to uh, and give that just a second. Okay, here, here we go. And um, as, as we've been doing the past few weeks, uh, we'll start off just looking at the Dow Jones Industrial Average to get a general idea of where the economy is today. And you can see this; these are the Bollinger Bands, and you can say, see we're running below the running average in the uh, lower half of a uh, of a range here that looks fairly steady on top, but with a bottom dropping. Um, a lot of this is uh, due to the the things that we've been talking about for for so long that I, I'm just going to start making a cassette tape of this, the INI, the uh, interest in inflation, but also as the uh, debt ceiling talks uh, continue, despite the fact that 99% of the serious commodity traders and investment counselors in the country are confident that that an agreement will be reached. The United States is not going to default on its debt. 
the particular way it's reached and that 1% chance that it might not be reached and uh, that they might be willing to uh, play this out with the U.S. defaulting and then coming back after a week or two weeks or three weeks uh, does introduce a lot of uncertainty. And the markets tend to sell off when there's uncertainty. So uh, I think that some of that money is uh, probably going to uh, it's going in mason jars in somebody's backyard until uh, after June the 1st when we know what happened with the debt ceiling. But looking over here to, uh, to the reason somebody tuned into uh, this particular show, looking at our uh, futures on old crop cotton, we closed at 84.35. That was down 97 points. New crop cotton closed at 82.44. That's down 94 points. And uh, you might notice the uh, the slight invert there, which would typically indicate some nearby demand. If you uh, go on out here to the uh, to the new crop corn, new crop corn closed up seven and three quarters at five sixteen and three quarters. New crop beans closed down nine and a quarter at eleven eighty seven and three quarters. Wheat closed up sixteen cents at a 622 and a quarter and rough price closed uh, down nine at 1505. Um, so not a, not a great day in the commodities, a good day if you're, if you have wheat in the field and, uh, and a, not a bad day if you've got some, some corn out there that's, that's looking good. And uh, actually I was just visiting with, uh, with one of my farmers yesterday and discovered that, that I actually have some acres I thought were going to be planted in cotton or going to be planted in wheat or are going to be harvested in wheat. Uh, we had planted a cover crop over the winter. So, so this was good news to me um, and offsets the fact that as I came to you and mentioned last week, I, uh, I sold my cotton last week and uh, that has uh, led to uh, some to to a major rally in in the market as uh, as it always does whenever we uh, whenever we finally give up the ghost on a, on our old crop cotton we will spur a rally other things going on um, of course the uh, the US dollar is strengthening a little bit and that is because as i mentioned earlier the uh, growing confidence in the financial sector that that President Biden and Speaker McCarthy will be able to reach some sort of an agreement on the debt ceiling and that the Senate will uh, will go along with, with all that as well. Uh, time is ticking, but uh, I think that if you were planning on seeing either uh, President Biden or Speaker McCarthy at your uh, Memorial Day picnic, you should probably put those plans on hold. I believe those two will be working through the weekend. Um, other things going on, oil prices were a little higher. And again, this is also on optimism that, that a deal may be in the works on the uh, on the debt ceiling. Uh, looking at uh, looking at crop progress. Now, we did see here, according to the uh, USDA weekly planting progress data, 45% of the cotton uh, crop was planted as of this week. And keep in mind that about two-thirds of the U.S. cotton crop is actually in Texas. So, uh, so that 45% is actually a little higher for regions outside Texas. So they, they really ought to, um, you know, sometimes on some of our uh, import-export data, they have how much cotton there is in the world, and then they have how much cotton is in China versus rest of the world, because China does hold so much of the world crop. They should do that with Texas as well. Um, on a five-year average, we would normally have about 50% planted here. And some of this is due to the fact that it is so dry in Texas 
that uh, those Texas plantings are some of those guys are holding off till they get some moisture. Um, I read in, in another story that apparently a lot of Texas producers are taking a very serious look at grain sorghum or milamaze, milo as we uh, refer to it here. And anyone who's uh, familiar with that crop is probably uh, scratching a little bit right now because nobody enjoys harvesting milo. But, uh, but they are looking at that uh, for a couple of reasons. One thing is that milo is a very, very inexpensive crop to rise. Uh, milo prices typically move uh, hand in hand with corn. Corn prices are looking a little better, as, as you saw here. And also, milo typically improves the soil for the crop to follow. So if you are a Texas cotton producer, you can go out, plant some milo, keep your money in your pocket through the season, Hopefully, sell your Milo for a decent price, even if you just get a break-even price on the Milo. Next year, you're looking at improved situation when you go out there to plant cotton. You're going you're gonna to restore, restore some of the soil health, restore some of the nitrogen in that, in that soil. So uh, we're seeing some of that go on in Texas. Um, you know, as I as mentioned earlier, we saw soybeans sell off and the corn rise. Um, you know, we're looking at basically a very, very dry weather outlook for uh, for the Midwest. Uh, we're shifting from a La Nina to El Nino, and typically in an El Nino summer, we will see drought um, in the upper Midwest, where where a, a big portion of the uh, corn crop is produced. And um, other things going on, um, looking at uh, Looking at wheat here, wheat did tick higher after setting a fresh two-year low earlier this session. So, I mean, wheat is really, uh, really move, moving around. Um, but the market is looking at those uh, at those crops in Kansas. Uh, in Kansas, let's see. Well, we've we've got another story that we will look at here in a bit. But Can Kansas is in serious trouble on their wheat crop. And as I say, we will we'll talk about that a little bit more in a few minutes. Um, we are seeing nearby concerns with, uh, with, with wheat supplies and U.S. buyers are, are now going out and actually starting to uh, source wheat from Poland and Germany. Um, and uh, again, we will be seeing a little more of that in, uh, in some other stories. But those are, those are the big headlines that we're looking at today to, uh, to move this market. Uh, really, the, the very biggest factors are the aforementioned I and I and the debt ceiling, the things that are moving the uh, the financial markets are are pushing our commodities around much more than supply and demand right now, uh, because we are where we are. The the winter crops aren't coming in yet. The spring crops are just now getting started. So everything there is a matter of conjecture as a for, as opposed to uh, the financial markets where we actually are looking at the situation today. All right. Yeah. Um, and then was there more to this story about the uh, wheat concerns? You know, of course, uh, we've been kind of following that in the news here as far as uh, domestic production goes, as far as um, a decrease in domestic production goes. Um, what, what do we see there and, and what are the ramifications of that? Well, well, let me give let me let me dive into that just just a little bit. And uh, although I really get annoyed by the by the phrase deep dive so so this will be more of a shallow dive here or, or maybe a medium dive. maybe a just maybe it's a belly flop i, I don't know but uh um, you know first to back up to the to the deal with the black sea corridor because as as we know the u.s midwest 
and Ukraine are the world's two primary sources for, for wheat, certainly in the Northern Hemisphere. And um, we've talked a lot in recent, in the last oh, six or eight weeks, about the deal that Russia and Ukraine worked out with the help of Turkey and the United Nations to keep the North Sea uh, corridor open for shipping Ukrainian commodities, but also for shipping some uh, Russian supplies, uh, you know, for Russia's uh, fertilizer, et cetera. Well, we've, we've still got some problems there. Uh, they, they inked the deal earlier or extended the deal earlier this month, but Ukraine says that uh, Russia is still not playing fair um, for instance, the uh, Ukrainian port, and I did have to uh, look up, and apparently I am pronouncing this right, the uh, Pivdinyi, um, has halted operations because Russia is not allowing ships to enter the port. So they've got wheat there. The port itself is not under attack, but they can't get empty ships in to be loaded or even full ships full of other supplies that they need, need in Pivdinyi and, and areas where, uh, where they are shipping things from there. But uh, the Russians are not allowing that in. Um, you know, the initiative that was signed by Russia and Ukraine last July ex was extended last week for three months. It's supposed to leave three uh, ports, three Ukrainian ports open in Odessa, um, Choromorsk, and Pivdinyi. And the UN, um, however, uh, yesterday did express concern that the, uh, that the Russians are not letting ships in. Part of this is before ships come in, they have to be inspected by, by an international team that includes Russian inspectors. Um, I guess this is to keep uh, other countries from shipping uh, war supplies or other things into Ukraine, um, un, you know, claiming that they're humanitarian supplies or something like that, and, and basically entering the war without entering the war. Russia doesn't want to allow that, and they, that was a concession that was made, was that Russian inspectors would be allowed to make, make these inspections. However, since April 29th, they have refused to inspect ships bound for Pivdenyi. So uh, that's that's one way to shut down a port without shutting down a port. And Pivdenyi is the largest port, uh, including in the initiative. Um, the uh, Restoration Ministry data show that it currently has about one and a half million tons of food items for future export to 10 countries with 26 ships waiting to, to get in. And these are massive ships. Uh, you know, Pivdenyi is the largest port. It's um, This is a bit like we remember the supply chain disruptions of a couple of years ago when um, when some of the ports in uh, California, some of our largest ports, had ships, uh, you, you you remember those those pictures of all the ships just lined out out there in the ocean, waiting to uh, to get in to either be emptied or filled. Well, that's what they're looking at in Pivdeni right now. Um, the Russians point out that uh, one of the reasons that they're dragging their feet is because Russian exports of food and fertilizer um, are technically not subject to uh, Western sanctions, but restrictions on payments, logistics, and insurance have, have managed to uh, mark as a, a barrier to shipments. As, as somebody pointed out once, uh, in reality, Nations don't trade commodities and supplies with each other. Firms trade with other firms in the other countries. And if those firms can't get financing, if they can't get insurance or permits, then uh, then the goods can't travel. So, uh, so Russia is alleging that, um, that the West 
is is using a subterfuge to keep them from trading. So apparently they're going to return the favor and keep Ukrainians from trading. So that will be something to to watch. And that is one thing that's uh, potentially going to boost uh, wheat prices in the near term. As we mentioned earlier, there is some uh, near-term demand. Now, also, uh, when you when you first introduced this segment, we did talk about the uh, concerns in uh, in Kansas, and in Kansas, we are seeing uh, we are seeing a lot of producers file insurance claims on failed acres. Uh, these this these are wheat crops that they do not expect to make a harvest. They do not expect to uh, carry to the harvest, and this is due to uh, to drought and uh, and they have had some extreme cold conditions. This uh, this winter, and uh, you know, abandoning these fields, um, you know, this is abandonment is the uh, technical term, will result in smaller U.S. wheat supply um, in the world's number five wheat exporter, um, which will send the U.S. wheat supply down to 16-year lows. Um, this is uh, also causing some major problems uh, economically in Kansas because you've got an awful lot of these small towns that. You know, as as much as towns around here used to be cotton towns or, or say, towns up in the northwest are uh, timber towns, these towns in Kansas really are wheat towns. And basically the, the entire town, the diner, the local grocery store, the gas station, the hotels, et cetera, absolutely depend on the wheat trade uh, to... Uh, to, to make money so that the locals have money to spend and also these traveling harvest crews that will come in and stay in the region for a couple of weeks, fill the hotels, the cafes, the stores, um, and even the implement dealers with, uh, with paying customers as, as the wheat crop is reduced, obviously those, uh, those activities get uh, dramatically reduced. Um, you know, another thing also, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of pressure right now, um, because, uh, we're we're seeing uh, we're seeing the soaring prices for hay, um, which means that a lot of these producers can actually make more by cutting their wheat for hay than they can by cutting their wheat for grain. Uh, this is again due to the drought in the Midwest, and a lot of cattle producers are absolutely paying top dollar for hay. Uh, we we saw this uh, several years ago. I believe it was in 2017, maybe 2000. 18 when the drought was so high. I know here, here in Missouri, we even saw Governor Parson um, untie some money and some shipping regulations to uh, to help producers find hay. Uh, the Department of Agriculture worked very hard to try to alleviate that uh, that crisis. So uh, so it's a tough situation over there in Kansas. We'll be we'll be paying close attention to it. Certainly for uh, for Missouri producers who are not in a drought. Um, their uh, their suffering may lead to uh, to higher prices for us on our wheat. Um, this is something that doesn't happen that often. But with uh, with the with the North Sea shipping channel having a question mark on it, and the Kansas crop in trouble, and the rest of the nation's crop being uh, fair to Midland at best, um, I think that uh, we can should probably look for a continued high prices on wheat. So this is probably probably a great time for folks who have left that uh, the wheat wheat in the field. All right. Good to know. Good to uh, get a grasp of the situation there. Um, we're also looking at some of the efforts. Of course, we've been chatting here for well several months going back and well into last year and so forth about the avian flu, uh, the, the concerns around that. Um, 
And now that also has to do as we're looking at uh, at some of the efforts to to try and remedy that situation, try and get that under control. Um, what what do we see there? What's what's new? What's developing? Well, the, uh, the the general session of the World Organization for Animal Health, who by the way has one of the greatest acronyms ever. It's W-O-A-H, or WOE, but uh, anyhow, the WOE is having their uh, annual meeting um, in, in Paris, and they are looking at, um, at basically the worldwide incident of highly pathogenic avian flu, and as some of y'all may recall, a couple of years ago, when the highly pathogenic avian flu uh, first started getting some attention, we did ask uh, Director Chin of the Missouri Department of Agriculture to uh, to define the difference between the highly pathogenic avian flu and the regular avian flu. And uh, you know, to our great shock and surprise, it turns out that the uh, difference is that this one is highly pathogenic. So with, with that in mind, um, this, this actually has been a, a crisis uh, in the poultry industry um, across borders. It's, it's not just uh, not just humans who pass uh, pass viruses around from continent to continent. And as you can imagine, anything in poultries that also sometimes spreads back and forth between wild bird flocks, it's very easy for this to uh, move from country to country or even continent to uh, to continent. And so. They're looking at ways to curtail this, and typically, uh, unlike in, in human populations, we all know that, that vaccines, uh, putting aside political reactions to, to the last round, you know, vaccines have been one of our best and brightest tools against any sort of uh, any sort of pandemic and against any sort of viral um, infection that spreads around in populations. Well, this gets to be a little bit trickier when you're talking about um, farm animals and, and in particular poultry. Uh, for one thing, uh, chickens have such a short um, lifespan that it's typically been easier to simply wipe out a, a flock locally to to euthanize an entire flock um, rather than to try to vaccinate an entire flock because they just don't live long enough to feel like you got your benefit out of it. And also because of uh, some concerns by consumers about consuming meat from uh, vaccinated birds. Turkeys, however, have a longer lifespan. And in some of the European countries, we are seeing uh, pushes to, uh, to, to have a national mandatory vaccination program. In the United States, we've typically not seen that. However, they are looking at a couple of uh, bird flu vaccination scenarios focusing on turkeys that would uh, gather the largest number of turkey farms um, in a move, but they're doing a cost-benefit analysis here. Uh, now, no decision has been made yet, um, and again, the United States is a little nervous about this, in part because there are also trade curbs. Um, once you start getting into mandatory vaccination or any other mandatory treatment of, uh, of, of livestock, uh, so much of the livestock goes across international borders, and if different countries have different standards and different um, different rates of documentation and different methods of, uh, of confirming that a given flock has been vaccinated, it creates a lot of problem. And again, you're talking about you're talking about shipping shipping poultry or shipping uh, shipping turkey meat, and uh, these are perishable things that cannot sit in a port for three months while somebody debates the uh, you know the vaccination status of those turkeys that may have been 
you know, at, at any one of uh, of a hundred different uh, different lots. So what they're looking at now is going into very specifically targeted uh, geographic and species oriented um, places to 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 vaccinate. Um, so this is something that if you are raising turkeys, it's probably worthwhile to to talk to the Missouri Department of Agriculture, talk to the United States Department of Agriculture, and make sure that you are up to speed on this. Uh, you know, for what it for what it's worth, the National Turkey Federation, which not to be confused with the National Wild Turkey Federation, but uh, but they represent uh, U.S. farmers and processors, supports the development of the vaccine, and um, the uh, the USDA said that about 70% of all commercial poultry farms affected in the 2022 outbreak were turkey farms. So so again, this is uh, very specific to or, or it has the most impact on the uh, on the tur- turkey flock. So uh, again, for our turkey producers. Uh, uh, something to uh, keep a close watch on and uh, be sure that you're up to speed on what's going on there and that you're ready to do whatever whatever needs to be done to uh, to keep your flock safe. Um, USDA does say that at least at this time, they still say maintaining uh, phytosanitary and biosecurity standards uh, that you always have are the uh, best efforts that you can, uh, the, those are the best steps you can take right now today to keep your flock safe and uh, be sure that the meat that you're shipping and the livestock you're shipping are in fact safe and healthy. All right, absolutely, absolutely. And we had uh been following last week the story of uh, pork producers in California and this revolved around Amendment 12. This went to the Supreme Court and of course that ruling then has uh, ramifications for everybody or for well for um, I believe it was the if I'm getting this right is it was the state Supreme Court uh, I may have gotten myself mixed up there but uh, uh, or, or, or what, what are we looking at here as far as uh, more more ramifications now that we've given more time for the uh, the smoke to clear on this. Sure, sure. Well, the the in, in a nutshell, um, Amendment Twelve was a, a California um, amendment, a ballot initiative, that uh, basically came in and said all pork sold in California had to meet certain standards, that the pigs had to be raised according to a particular set of rules. Uh, now. This was a problem because California only raises about 15% of the of the pork that they consume in California, and what it meant was that in order to sell pork into California, that your pork had to meet those standards, um, and according to California's interpretation, that meant that they could send their inspectors out to other states uh, to inspect. You know, it went to the Supreme Court, the two sides, with California saying, "Look, we can set the rules." However, we want. If you want to sell a product in our state, it's got to meet our standards. This is local control. The opposition, including the uh, national pork producers and the Biden administration, um, said, "No, this is too broad sweeping, and basically, one state through a ballot initiative is trying to control an entire national industry, and this also has international implications because." So much of the pork um, goes back and forth between the U.S. and Canada and between the United States and Mexico. Further, it all goes through these large distributorships. So it's not always clear where the pork chop that you bought in your grocery store locally, you don't know that may have come from from the hog farm down the street. It may have come from a California hog farm. It may have come from a New York hog farm. There's, there's no good way at present 
to, to have that information. So that's the background. And the Supreme Court ruled on the side of California. They said, nope, California can do this. It's, it's, a, it's a local control issue. Uh, the legislators legislature is looking at different ways to uh, control that. Well, there was a prediction made by, by a lot of the folks uh, who said, well, you know, once California does this, we expect to see other states uh, come in. And sure enough, uh, we saw today or, or this, this week a measure in uh, New Jersey. Now, now, this is not a new measure. Um, about 10 years ago, um, when uh, Governor Chris Christie, as some of y'all may recall him, he ran for president um, back in 2016, and he may have run also in 2012. I don't, I don't recall specifically, but uh, he vetoed a, a pair of proposals for New Jersey to ban um, gestational crates to uh, confine pregnant pigs. Now, now these gestational crates... Uh, Animal rights activists, uh, people like the uh, Humane Society of the United States, uh, and by the way, they are not related to your local Humane Society. They're actually an animal rights organization. So when you hear them, they are uh, similar to, say, PETA or, or other organizations that, uh, that take on animal rights issues from an animal rights perspective. PETA says that these crates are too small, that they uh, confine the animals, and they're inhumane. Uh, pork producers say that these uh, these crates actually protect the pregnant sows um, and that there are a, a number of health benefits to uh, putting them in these gestational crates um, among other things to to protect the uh, to protect the uh, the piglets well in New Jersey, the uh, State Assembly Judiciary Committee uh, this past Thursday unanimously approved a bipartisan bill that would require the State Board of Agriculture and the State Department of Agriculture to adopt rules and regulations restricting the confinement of breeding pigs as well as calves raised for veal. Um, so this is, uh, as you might expect, a little controversial, and given the Amendment 12 ruling, again, raises the specter of is this also going to extend to pork that is, quote unquote, imported into New Jersey from neighboring states or even from here, at, here in Missouri? Uh, what sort of rules if you sell to a, to a distributor, if you sell, say, to Cargill and Cargill is selling meat in New Jersey, you know, is Cargill then going to require you with your uh, hog farm, say, in, uh, in Perryville there to, uh, to use, you know, to not use these gestational crates that you've, that you've been using? Now, you know, on one side, uh, the folks pushing for uh, for this legislation are uh, are folks, including uh, folks like Stephen Van Zant, Debbie Harry, Chelsea Handler, and Ethan Hawke, all noted uh, agricultural authorities, uh, and the Animal Legal Defense Fund. And um, then, on the other hand, you have the uh, New Jersey Farm Bureau, the, the New Jersey uh, Department of Agriculture, the National Pork Producers, et cetera, on on the other side. So, um, so you know, you see that these these are not people that are natural allies. They have got very, very different perspectives on how agriculture should operate, and very different levels of uh, agricultural expertise. However, and uh, this was. It, it is fascinating to me. The New Jersey Farm Bureau uh, managed to uh, to get together with some of the animal rights organizations and work out some compromise wording going into the measure uh, that would allow um, 
Farm Bureau and the pork producers to still have have a hand in defining what constituted these gestational crates and to try to find some middle ground um, so that they actually had basically agriculture has a seat at the table in these negotiations because the Farm Bureau stepped up and negotiated with the other side. Uh, I'll I'll reserve further commentary than that about how willing the uh, the other side was to uh, to work on that. But this is uh, this is certainly something to uh, something to watch uh, as as we mentioned in the previous Amendment 12 uh, discussion. The vast majority of pork in the United States goes through very large distributors. Um, you know, so for some of you, this may be cause to uh, reconsider going out and uh, supporting some of your, your local hog producers who also have meat facilities. Uh, the Missouri Farm Bureau has a directory on their website at mofb.org of, uh, of local producer processors where you can actually buy retail meat from someone who's producing pork in your area. Um, not, not every pork producer has an approved butcher facility, but, but a lot of them do, and a lot of butcher facilities are closely aligned with local producers. So, so that's something you might, uh, you might check out um, as, as well. A lot of the National Pork Producers and Missouri Farm Bureau feel like a, a strong network of the uh, local um, producer processors is probably uh, is probably a good thing for the industry and will provide an outlet if uh, things like Amendment 12 begin to restrict the ability of Missouri producers to uh, to produce pork in the way that they feel is in fact most humane and most effective. So uh, anyhow, more more stories there to, uh, to keep an eye on. All right. I know as well, we, well, I believe that we have then uh, reached that time in the show regarding our, uh, our invasive species of the week. And uh, more and more of these sound more and more like they, um, they ought to be in some sort of old black and white horror movie where there's a giant creature, you know, that is uh, somehow uh, terrorizing some sort of city. And that certainly goes for today in terms of the invasive giant spider. Uh, can you tell us more about where we're seeing this, what this means? Well, let me, you, you buried the lead just a little bit oh, did there. I? And let me just repeat, we're talking about invasive giant spiders. That's the, you know, I mean, but you could put all the rest of it aside, but invasive giant spiders is, yes. is the headline here. So when I was, uh, when I was reviewing my, uh, I have this great Google feed that brings me stories about invasive species from all over the world. But what I found that the U S was battling invasive giant spiders, yes. I thought, well, this is a, this is just too, too good to be true. Um, well, especially because right now they're in the southeast, and I have I have no intention of going to the southeast for for a little while. But I'm going to put a picture up here, and um, let's see. Here we go. Okay, now here you can see our uh, giant invasive spider. I'm just going to leave I'm just going to leave him up here for uh, for a few minutes, and um, and tell you that from here to here is a little over an inch. It's about an inch and a quarter. And then you add another three to four inches behind and three to four inches in front for, for the legs. So these are called the Joro spider, um, and they have apparently spread all over Georgia as well as uh, neighboring states there in the southeast. But this is doubly fascinating. And, um, okay, we'll... Uh, 
we'll hop we'll hop back over here to um <laughs> there we go we'll yeah. I, I wouldn't i wouldn't want to send anybody into into an arachnophobia fit but um this is fascinating some of the research they found is that ordinarily invasive species um are very successful because they are very aggressive and and either they replace the uh, the native species or they attack the native species or they're more effective at, at eating than the native species and none of those seem to be the case with the uh, joro spiders here um, and what what they did is they went out and they did some research to determine just how aggressive they were and what the researchers did is they collected Joro spiders, as, as you can see there, they, they look a little bit like what we would call a garden spider um, here, in, here in Missouri, although garden spiders are typically about half this size, and they're still some of the largest spiders that, that we have. But they would take these, take them into the lab, let them, let them build a web, um, and for what it's worth, their webs can be as much as six to eight feet across, and sometimes two of these will form webs together, so there may be a 12 or 15 foot web out there, you know, completely blocking off a, a trail or a portion of a portion of the woods or shrubs. But they once they once the spiders got into the lab and started building webs there in the lab, they would go and give the spiders two puffs with a turkey baster. Now, this story has not only invasive giant spiders, but we have turkey basters. You know, this, this story's got a little something for, for everybody. And then they would examine the spider's behavior. Now, with very aggressive spiders, ordinarily if they go and they, they puff the spider with air, the spiders will either start running around the web looking for a place to attack. They'll be still for five or ten seconds to try to assess the, uh, the threat, or they may go hide. Well, these spiders wouldn't move in some cases for as much as two or three hours. And um, that that means they're they're pretty timid. If you happen to run into one, these spiders are not going to get in a hurry to run over and bite you. In point of fact, they they, they don't bite humans or they're, certainly they're non venomous and they're not seen as a threat to humans. Um, but I was just fascinated by by the notion of uh, researchers in the lab with, with these spiders that I showed a few minutes ago and turkey basters blowing air on the spiders and then sitting there with a, uh, with, with a stopwatch to see how long it would take for the spiders to take some sort of either defensive or reaction, reactive uh, uh, action. But uh, anyhow, they're, they're saying that the reason that they have been so successful is they are very, very successful at, at breeding and very, very prolific. So, uh, so far, these spiders have not moved into Missouri. They are, however, moving throughout the southeast. Um, so it's probably only a matter of time till somebody vacationing at the beach stops at a truck stop in, uh, or a rest stop in Georgia or Alabama or Mississippi and uh, brings back a, uh, one of these to, to Missouri. And uh, it remains to be seen how, how far north that they, they will go. But if you do happen to see a, a garden spider that looks uh, remarkably big for an ordinary garden spider, you might want to take a picture of him. If you just happen to have a turkey baster handy, you might blow on him and see how long he sits still. Or if you don't, since they don't seem to be very aggressive, and frankly, garden spiders aren't either, 
give them a little blow or a tug and see how long they stay there. And, uh, and if, if they're staying there a long time and they're an inch long um, just for the body there, then you probably want to contact uh, Missouri Department of Agriculture, Missouri Department of Natural Resources, or University Extension uh, so that they can maybe check this out and determine whether or not the, the uh, invasive giant spiders have, uh, have made it to, uh, to Missouri or not. So there's your invasive species of the week, which fortunately is uh, currently invading our neighbors to the south, but um, we'll see uh, how long it stays that way. <laughs> All right, absolutely. All right, Barry, I uh, believe that wraps us up for today. Barry Bean, thank you so much for being here. Appreciate your time. Yeah, always a pleasure. Big fun. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And uh, always always good to be aware of those uh, those spider possibilities and those uh, those potential uh, critters to watch out for that might be might be coming our way. Who knows? Who knows? And uh, Barry is a with the Missouri Farm Bureau Board, and he is a heartland farmer. We want to thank you all for tuning in, being here with us today. Appreciate your time. Uh, stick around. More local news live. Just around.